You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the LaFollette School of Public Affairs to interview Gregory Nemitz, Professor of Public Affairs, to talk about technological change and environmental policy. Professor Nemitz is the author of How Solar Became Cheap, a Model for Low-Carbon Innovation. We will ask him about his research in this book, as well as other projects and initiatives that inform his research and teaching. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. We want to jump right into talking about your 2019 book, How Solar Became Cheap, a model for low-carbon innovation, about some of the things that you discuss and analyze in it. So first, could we just start with some kind of background on how this project kind of came to fruition? What was kind of the history of this project and how it came about? Yeah, so I started uh, grad school in 2002 and started working on solar energy there. And it was interesting, kind of a clean technology. It had some elegant physics behind it, but people that worked in the energy system wouldn't take it seriously. The energy system is just, it's massive and it's slow to change. And the idea that some really expensive, cool technology could actually make an impact was just dismissed because in energy, you need things to get big. And as it has turned out, the smallest technology, solar power, has turned out to be the one that's been able to scale, get bigger, and make more of a contribution way faster than large-scale technologies. And that's kind of an insight that has taken me a while to really appreciate, but now I see it everywhere. So it's so something about this accumulation of experience with small-scale technologies that can beat big ones. But anyway, that's where it started. And I spent a fair amount of time uh, looking at data sets, trying to understand how the technology was improving, what was making it cheaper. And so I did a fair number of like uh, econometric analyses of trying to figure out what factors were contributing cost reductions. I was doing bottom-up engineering models where we could kind of calculate what contributions to efficiency and where they came from. There were some good insights that came out of that work. But at some point, I kind of felt like there was some um, omitted variables. There were variables that we couldn't measure that were probably still important. And so I guess I gave a presentation at one point. I remember this just about four or five years ago. And I put one slide together of saying, well, look, this is how solar emerged. And I just had a map and there were arrows pointing from Germany to Japan and Japan to China and Australia to China. And at some point I was like, that's one slide, but it'd be good to go into that story. And so an opportunity came up to, to write a proposal for a project. And I kind of had this idea, like, let's go beyond what the data say and see what's left elsewhere, like other data sources and specifically in people's heads and try to extract their tacit knowledge about how things worked and especially the international flows across countries that made such a big impact. So that's where the idea for the book um, project came from. It was really motivated by just this kind of intuition that there were important factors that we couldn't measure. And so we're being omitted from models and thus we weren't getting a full explanation. So the idea was to go uh, deeper and 
use some kind of archival research, but also especially do interviews with people that worked in the industry to figure out what some of the, the steps were along the way to get to, to low cost solar. Can you talk about that research methodology a little bit more? You know, we have a yeah. lot of student listeners who some of them, either if they're undergrads or maybe thinking about writing an undergraduate thesis, or if they're in the grad school or working at developing their own thesis. I'm curious as to with some of these kind of unorthodox beyond the data approaches, how you approached reaching conclusive and well-vetted data via a reliable, reliable methodologies in this kind of unorthodox space. Yeah, that's a good question. I think one insight that I picked up along the way, probably from a grad school advisor, you know, kind of comparing the benefits of qualitative research versus quantitative research, and you know, what was the better way to go? And I remember him saying, like, well, if you can do both, that's the best because each informs the other. So the quantitative kind of gives you a pretty rigorous way of comparing things and maybe even testing hypotheses. And the qualitative is a way to maybe generate new hypotheses or to identify factors that later you might want to operationalize and turn into variables that you can put into a model. And so I really like this idea of this kind of benefits of qualitative and quantitative. And I had done about as far as you could possibly go on the quantitative side, given the, the data that we've had. So uh, I felt like there was more to do on the qualitative side. So in the book part, it really is based on all the quantitative work that had done over the years and that other people have done and that I could kind of make use of, but then to complement that and really to identify some omitted variables and um, new hypotheses by talking to people. And I think one of the things I try to do was to talk to as many people as was feasible. So I ended up talking to 75 people in 18 countries. Now, these are like half hour to one hour interviews, sometimes longer than that. And there was, you know, a protocol of specific questions I would ask that, you know, was vetted with the IRB. So there was kind of that part of it. But then I always wanted to make space in those interviews for parts of the interview where the, the interviewee got really excited and started like dropping anecdotes about a dinner that they had in China with lots of alcohol involved and money moving around and that that explains how they started their company you know, and some of those things you can't quote directly. So it's a little bit hard to attribute, but they did kind of, and, you know, I wouldn't excuse that as evidence for, oh, this is how it actually works. It's, but it's more, it gives you an idea that you could then ask other people around or especially look for data to see, yeah, did this company actually grow? Where did their investment come from? Does that, can I corroborate what the, that story that that person told in that interview? So that was, that was the methodology and then pulling it all together. But, you know, I can imagine future work on this, case study of solar could, you know, start to try to quantify some of the ideas that I pulled out qualitatively and start to measure them, like, especially about, you know, trade and intellectual property moving across borders, especially people moving from one country to another. You know, I got a lot of interesting stories about how that made things happen. Um, but, you know, some of it you could probably end up uh, measuring and, and quantifying and putting that into a model to compare it with some of the things that are easy to measure, like, the uh, research spending or efficiency improvements or things like that. So yeah, it was really this combination of feedback between the qualitative approach and the quantitative approach that I think provided some new insight that I think has been helpful. And then of course, not to spoil the book, but uh, what were some of the things that you were able to find out or then uncover through this combined qualitative and quantitative approach? And do you think that you could have made the, developed these insights or found out these arguments otherwise? 
I had inklings of some of these arguments, but um, you really needed to substantiate them by going to these places, talking to people, studying some of the developments, understanding some of their history and cultural background. One of the theoretical um, frameworks I use is this idea of national innovation systems, that each country has ways that they produce innovation that depends on things like culture, the institutions that they have, the education system that they have, the size and type of markets that they have. And that really affects their capabilities in terms of creating new technologies and commercializing them and scaling them. And, you know, that was kind of insight number one from the book is that there was no single country did it. No single country produced low cost solar. It was kind of a passing of the torch or of the baton in a relay race with each country providing some distinct capability. It started with the U.S. of really doing the science and the research and development. Then the Japanese that used industrial policy and exploited some niche markets for large multinational corporations to get involved. And then it was Germany that launched this giant subsidy program that created this new demand. And that demand got a lot of solar installed, but what it really did is it got the suppliers to take the industry seriously and start designing specific equipment for producing automation for producing solar at really large scale, really quickly and really inexpensively. And the Chinese use their innovative capabilities to start working with some of that equipment, putting it together in interesting ways, and then having far more ambition than any of the other countries in terms of scaling it up. And there was one quote I got from a German guy, because the Germans were leading in the industry for a while and lost their lead to the Chinese. And they said, when the Germans were thinking about megawatts, the Chinese were thinking about gigawatts. And even today, the Chinese are thinking of tens and hundreds of gigawatts. So um, that, so that was uh, outcome one of uh, the story is that it was no single country and each country added something. The second insight is that it was really international flows of knowledge that enabled this kind of relay race to happen. It was people moving around from one country to another. It was finance and money moving from one country to another. It was machines being developed in one country, then used in another country. Uh, and then it was policies in multiple countries that stimulated demand and the scale up that we saw that China really took advantage of. So yeah, it's these international flows of knowledge of people, machines, and ultimately the products that really were crucial. Yeah, those were the two main insights. And then the third one is that even though it was such a, a miracle to get to low-cost solar, it happened way too slowly to, if we want to use this as a playbook, as a model that we can apply to other technologies we want to scale up. So the first commercial solar cell was in 1958. And the really first time that solar was beating fossil fuels without subsidies was 2018 or so. So that's a long time. That's like 60 years to go from the first sale uh, to cheap. And then now that it's cheap, it needs to scale up and that's going to take a decade or two for, for it to really reach its potential. So if, if that's an 80 year timeline and we're thinking about technologies that are starting today and it's 1958, we don't have the rest of the century to scale up technologies on solar space. So that's the other part of the book and that you know I, I continue to work on now is how do we speed things up? How do we accelerate innovation and do things in a way that's faster? And I mean, here's the part where the quantitative part 
in a simple way comes in, it's like we need a factor of four faster. So we need to go from an 80 year time from commercialization to large scale deployment to a 20 year time. So that in the 2030s and 2040s, we've got low cost, widely adopted electric vehicles and other technologies that we might need for energy and, and climate problems. So that's that's what I kind of take away from that I think is important to, to work with now is, is that um, speed and how to accelerate things. One analogy that I looked into recently was uh, for vaccine development. So we got about exactly that type of acceleration in the last year. So the fastest vaccine development ever was about four years. And the operation warp speed, which we conducted last year, is basically a year. And so that's kind of what we need to do for other technologies in energy and climate is to apply that type of effort and focus and resources um, to speed things up, because that's what that's what the climate problem demands that we do. There's so many things I could ask about this because it's so interesting. Can you put in context a little bit more this question of how did solar become so cheap? Like, especially in in the context of other energy production techniques or other renewable energy sources? Yeah, I mean, yeah, just that's one thing. I mean, I always start my book talks with is to establish or let people know solar is cheap. So in sunny places, uh, solar is the cheapest way to make electricity, period. No subsidies, no carbon price, no externalities captured, just pure economics, solar is the cheapest way. And it's gotten cheaper faster than any other technology. It's also been a surprise. So even people in the solar industry didn't expect we'd be where we are today with solar. Um, so all of those things are true. And so now you start to see solar being adopted in a, in a very serious way with large scale installations happening in many different types of countries. If you look um, you know, at where installations are happening, it's in sunny places for sure, but even in starting to be in not so sunny places as well. And so that's been a real impact is to see all that happening. And uh, the same thing is happening in uh, batteries for almost exactly the same mechanisms that I identified in my solar book. It's getting up to scale. It's this modular design so that you could use basically the same technology in a phone as you do in a laptop, as you do in a car, as you would in a really large scale uh, stationary power plant like Lexto wind farm or solar farm. It's just stacking more and more of the same thing together, just the same way we do solar. And that allows you to do things that you can't do on a really large scale technology. You can serve almost any size of market. You get tremendous iterations, like the number of units you produce. So there's lots of different opportunities to improve. You know, one comparison I use is that in the history of the nuclear industry, we've built less than a thousand nuclear reactors. And in the history of solar so far, um, we've built about 2 billion solar panels. So that's a million times more chances to improve, to incorporate some new production technology or design of the device. And, and solar has really benefited from, from that. And we're seeing the exact same thing with batteries and you know potentially other technologies could take a similar path. I am extremely glad you brought up the the battery aspect because I was going to ask you one criticism that I've heard of solar are the materials that they're like the precious metals that are required in making like you know lithium batteries or in creating like the technologies for 
the solar panels. Is that something that is going to end up affecting how cheap solar is or affecting solar's, you know, quote unquote ranking among other like renewable energy sources? Yeah. So it's a good question to have because we, if we want solar to play a role in climate change and dealing with energy, it's got to be a lot bigger than now. So that means not billions of solar panels, but tens and hundreds of billions of solar panels. We don't have precious metal issues with solar. So the biggest consumption or the core technology is uh, silicon semiconductors. So we're basically using sand for that. And the other most heavy piece is the glass on top of them, which is also sand. And there's lots of sand. I mean, there actually are people that study how much sand there is in the world um, because we use it for lots of things like concrete and, and other building materials, but it's important for solar. So the other materials are things like uh, some silver and aluminum to get the current out and some plastic to seal it all together. But yeah, pretty simple materials, not a problem. Batteries have other materials where we would be more concerned about availability, but also how they're mined and, and processed. And so the lithium for lithium ion batteries is a concern. Cobalt is used in batteries, but you know, those are things that can be addressed. Um, they should be addressed because if we want to have a lot of electric vehicles, we potentially could be using a lot more materials than we do today. But you know, what we've seen with solar is that you can just use less and less of the functioning materials, especially if it gets expensive. And so we don't need to be using the exact amount of say lithium and cobalt as we do today. And then also there's lots of different ways you can make batteries and some don't use lithium at all. And some use less lithium and some start to use things like iron and sulfur that we have in abundance. And so I, I'm not really that concerned about in the long term that we hit a a dead end on materials, but it, it is a serious issue. And if you think about human rights issues in terms of how these metals are, are mined and processed, those are important ones as well. Um, but it does seem like something that consumers are more wary about than they were say 10 or 20 years ago. And so I think that's another way that some of these materials issues and, and the human rights issues associated with their extraction um, can get addressed as well. We're already kind of starting to get into it here, but this, I think that that's a really good example of one of the areas in which your research is giving us new insights to help us understand how to, and then enable us to en develop new low carbon based technologies and public policies, whether that be in solar or other places of renewable energy. So I kind of want to then broaden out from this specific example and ask like, what are the other steps and what are the other things that we're going to need to understand to take steps towards a carbon, either neutral or carbon free world? Yeah. Yeah. So I would maybe answer that in two ways. One is I would say there's lots of different technological technologies and systems that we'll need. And then two, there's many different policies that we'll need to support them. So in terms of the technologies, um, you know, the combination of solar and batteries can take us a really long way, not all the way to getting zero carbon, but it makes a huge difference. Like there's projects that I'm working on now for real that I would have been working on as kind of a science fiction-y someday, maybe we could do something with uh, taking CO2 out of the air or using hydrogen to make steel. And now there are plants that are being built to do that. And part of the reason is 
low-cost solar and low-cost batteries. So that's really accelerated. Those have been two crucial ones and will continue to be. But I do think there'll be additional technologies that we'll need. For example, most people realize it's not sunny all the time. <laughs> there's winter, there's night. And so the storage part that batteries do today can help for like four hours. But if we wanted to get 12 hours, we need better batteries. And if we needed like a couple of days at a time, which sometimes does happen, then we'll need a broader set of solutions and maybe longer term storage. So we'd need those types of technologies. We might need things like uh, being able to use natural gas without putting into the, the exhaust into the atmosphere. So that's sometimes called carbon capture. We might need advanced nuclear reactors that could be zero carbon and produce lots of energy. They so far have been really expensive to do, but that could be something that's uh, helpful in the future. And then I do think we'll probably end up needing to find ways to take carbon dioxide that's already in the air out of the air and somewhere else, like either in trees or underground. Um, and so there's a bunch of different ways we could be doing that as well. And there, but there's companies that are working on that and technologies that are actually being deployed to do that. So, yeah, so I think a variety of technological solutions are certainly no silver bullet. And then a whole bunch of things on the demand side of getting ways to people to get access to more energy services, but not have as big an impact. So that's on the technology. And then on the policy, I'd say the one insight that I've seen as kind of the evolution of policy to address energy and climate is it's gone from like one or two policies to a much broader set. And my solar work certainly supports this idea that we need a broad set of, of policies to support technology. So the kind of the first technology uh, policy people most start with would be like a carbon price. There's externalities, there's damages. Let's just make people pay for those and that'll change a lot of behavior. And that's potentially true, um, but so far it's been politically quite difficult to pass carbon price legislation that's high enough to make a difference. But it could be a pretty big part of the solution. And, and there are prices in place now, something like a fifth of global emissions are priced, a lot of them at very low prices, but those prices are going up. So that's part of it. The second thing that's come along is saying we need support for innovation directly. So we should fund research. And there's an idea called Mission Innovation a few years ago to double the energy R&D budgets for 20 or so countries. And so that's another end of the end of the support. But then if you look at successful technologies, which is kind of how I study things, the ones that have worked, there's more than a carbon price. Often there hasn't been a carbon price at all. And it's certainly not just about funding science and research and development. It's doing things like supporting some early demonstration projects, doing things like public procurement, like when the government will be an initial purchaser of technologies, when it's still kind of expensive and not proven, but actually by creating a market that companies actually have to serve, maybe with specific criteria about what they need to do, um, that's a way to grow from pre-commercial to actual commercial technologies, and then subsidies for early demand. And the key there with subsidies is we're not subsidizing technologies because we like them that they're green. We're not even subsidizing them because we want them to reduce pollution. We subsidize technologies so that we won't have to subsidize them anymore in the future. And I mean, that is what you need to look for is technologies that are dynamic, where the more you make of them, the cheaper they get. And a lot of things are like that. Not everything is like that. Some technologies 
there's resource constraints or you're just running out of something and it gets more expensive the more you use it. But things like solar and batteries and potentially other technologies that I think are interesting as well, you start building them and there's learning by doing and you get them cheaper. And there's this idea of a learning curve um, that brings the cost down. So that's something that's come up as well as early subsidies are important. And then ultimately, you know, a price on carbon allows you to really make markets bigger and, and get incentives really aligned. So the point from all of that is that it's a broad set of policies that we're going to need if we want to support these new technologies. And as I said before, accelerate their adoption so that uh, it doesn't take 80 years to get to uh, cheap, advanced uh, nuclear reactors, but we can do it in some faster way. Absolutely. Zooming in a little bit, I know you've done writing on solar in Wisconsin. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on that writing you've done, a little bit of the history of solar here in Wisconsin and kind of what it looks like moving forward? Yeah, I mean, there's been solar in Wisconsin for quite a while, but, you know, mostly small scale people, early adopters who are dabbling in the technology. That's one thing that I've learned from from doing this book is to take that type of activity seriously. I think a lot of people dismiss these early adopters, maybe you dismiss them politically because they're you think of them as just hippies or you dismiss them from a systemic perspective because it's too tiny to make any difference. But really that's what kept the industry alive in the US in the 1980s and 1990s were um, these kind of small installations, whether it's a school or uh, you know, a, a faith organization or just someone who was interested in solar that thought it was important or, or curious about it and tried it. And that, uh, that moved things along quite a bit. But that changed a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, when I started to see and realize that there was big projects happening in Wisconsin. And you know, I, I guess from studying this, I was thinking, yeah, that'll happen. But I just, I was surprised when it actually did, to be honest with you, that there were, you know, two large scale, like power plant scale projects that went in about two years ago. And then if you look, there's actually a, um, an institution that has to manage the grid. And one thing they do to manage the grid is to make sure the grid doesn't get overwhelmed. And so if you're going to build a new power plant, you have to kind of apply and say your plans. And it's a public list and you can look. And I looked about a year ago and there were 30 large solar uh, plants planned for our state. And maybe not all those will get built. They're kind of options that those companies are putting down. But it's it's amazing to think it's a real thing. And it's we don't have a requirement that there's renewable energy in Wisconsin. We've already met the one that we had in the past. There's no carbon price or carbon tax that solar is going to be advantaged by there are some federal tax credits that you can get from it, but you know, it's just, it's, it's a way to make electricity pretty inexpensively, even in a place that's not as sunny uh, as other places. So I think that's been pretty dramatic is to see that happen. And also on the other side is to see coal power plants being shut down so quickly around the state. I mean, there's only, I think two large coal plants that don't have a retirement date on them on the next couple of years. And so that's been a dramatic change. And so there's kind of three ways that you uh, meet that demand as, as those are shut down. Solar is one of them, wind power is another, and natural gas is another. And solar, wind, and natural gas are right competing with each other. And all the 
solar and wind projects have batteries as a possibility with all of them. So it, it's really a real thing, even in a place that's not the most sunny place in the world, and even in a place where there aren't specific policies that are trying to get a lot of solar built. So that's that's been dramatic for me to see, and it's been a big change in the last two or three years. And with the weather in Madison, the way it's been for the past three days, I agree with you. Sometimes Wisconsin doesn't feel like the sunniest place in the world. <laughs> right. um, but moving on to some of your other writing and research, a lot of the projects that we kind of scoped out on your website were framed with respect to the goals set in international agreements like the Paris Climate Accords. So before we get more specifically into some of your other work in writing, we want to ask you about the agreement kind of in general. What is your take on the shift in presidential administrations and their approach towards specifically the Paris Climate Agreement and I guess international agreements related to climate change and at large? And what difference do you think this will make in terms of achieving progress on climate change in the United States? Yeah, that's a good question. So you know, I would go back to like uh, the 2008 presidential campaign when both Senator Obama and John McCain both had plans to have climate legislation and engage internationally on climate. But that those plans and Obama won clearly, but those plans were really did not come to fruition in the first Obama administration. It was really they bet put everything on the ACA, the Healthcare Act, and by the time that was done. They didn't have the majority anymore, and so climate was off the table. In the second term, uh, so this is 2013 to 17, Obama really pushed climate, and that included some really consequential uh, bilateral diplomacy between the U.S. and China and the U.S. and India to engage them and to get them in the time coming up to the uh, meeting in Paris in December 2015 um, to have them, you know, be on board to do something and not just be on board to say, okay, to a plan, but to commit to doing their own emissions reductions. And that was something that India and China and developing countries in general in the past had said, you know, our priorities develop. So rich countries, you cause the problem, you need to do the emissions reductions. Um, but by 2015, that wasn't really viable anymore because those large growing economies, even though they were still developing, we're creating a lot of emissions. And so it wouldn't solve the problem if they were uh, able to sit on the sidelines. So that was a lot of work to get China and India engaged. And yeah, so in December, 2015, 190 countries signed the Paris Agreement. And you know, it's got kind of a couple of components to it. One, kind of the overall headline um, is that we need to, we commit to uh, not having global temperature go more than two degrees above pre-industrial. So we're about halfway there. And then there was at the very end of the talks, there was a coalition of environmental NGOs from developed countries and small island states. So those with like very low elevation who said two degrees is too much. 1.5 degrees is the only way we can avoid these island states being submerged. And that that's you know, a human right imperative, and that that needs to be part of it too. And so that is part of the Paris Agreement. So we, the wording is that we aim for two degrees, and we make efforts for 1.5 degrees. And then there's another pro process of it, which is that that was the overall goal. And then how we get there 
was completely bottom up. It left it to countries to come up with a plan. The plan had to be published and there was dates when it had to happen, but there's a database and you can see every country's plan for how they will achieve their emissions reductions. And that's a real, a big change that I think saved and made that agreement happen. Like in the past, it was much more top down. Say, okay, US, you get a 5% reduction. Germany, you have to go down by 8%. Australia, you go cut by 2%. That really hadn't worked very well, even though it, it kind of makes sense that you would allocate things that way. So this was a much more saying, okay, these are sovereign countries. You have your own priorities. You have your own national context. You figure out the best way. Maybe you focus on vehicles. Maybe you focus on your industry. Maybe it's your power plants. It's up to you. And so that's the, that's the system that we have in place. And I would say that, you know, the fundamental problem is that if you add up all those commitments and people do that, and the UN does this, you get this thing called the emissions gap. <laughs> so if we want to have two degrees or 1.5, we need countries to do more than they said they were going to do in these plans. And so the idea is that there needs to be a ratcheting up of ambition across all the countries that, that submitted their plan. So that's the problem. But, you know, it's, it's meant to be iterative. There's a process where these plans get updated every five years, and there's an important meeting uh, this November in Glasgow, Scotland. And then in 2023, that'll be the, the time to make plans for the next set of commitments. So the process is in place. It's flawed. And so far, the plans don't add up to where we need to go. But I, I think the basic takeaway I have is that we're in far better shape having the Paris agreements in place and having this mechanism in place, and especially the transparency that everyone publishes their plans, that we do this accounting and math to figure out if it all adds up to where we need to go. And if it doesn't, that it's made clear. I think that, you know, that's not the end of the story, but it's certainly we're in so much better shape with that in place than if what has happened before, if we got to the end of that two-week session in Paris in December 2015 and said, you know, we just can't come up with a deal because that had happened before and people are really concerned about that. So, yeah, I do think we're in much better shape with Paris Agreement uh, than if we didn't have it. And now with the Biden administration, so the Trump administration in June of 2017 withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, and then the Biden administration on the inauguration day made a decision to rejoin and within 30 days, they could. So by the end of February, we we're back in. As of the end of February, we we're back into the Paris Agreement. You mentioned it earlier, some of the projects about taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it's a huge part of the Paris Climate Agreement. Or, you know, if we're going to meet some of these goals, it's going to have to be part of it. And you, some of your research talks about, like, the removal of potential, the potential costs, some of the pathways to scale it up. Can you talk a little bit or, you know, uh, give us a little bit more details on this CO2 removal process? Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a technology and an area that was kind of pretty fringe and not taken too seriously until the Paris Agreement. And one thing that came out of the Paris Agreement, especially with 1.5, is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which does the science to inform the negotiations they were asked to provide a report on what it would take to get to 1.5. And two degrees is really hard. Uh, 1.5 is much harder than two degrees. And in fact, it's so hard that you pretty much can't get to 1.5 unless you somehow remove CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. And just the one scientific aspect of this, it's really important with climate change, 
is in contrast to things like acid rain that we've been successful at dealing with and particulates that get in people's lungs and kids go to asthma in the hospital for that, those pollutants get rained out within weeks to months after they're emitted. So if you just stop emitting, you'll have a relatively clean slate you know, within a few months or so. And climate change is not like that. Once you put CO2 up in the air, it stays for 100 years. So the idea of actually removing it uh, is kind of the only way you can get to 1.5, at least to do some of it. You still have to do all the solar panels and electric vehicles and all the decarbonization that we would do for two, but then you have to remove as well. And so now all of a sudden, these different methods of removing CO2 are being taken seriously. And some of them are very familiar and benign and natural, like growing more trees. So trees like are mostly carbon. And so you can have a tree that's several tons of carbon in the wood in the tree. So that, that's one way to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's called photosynthesis and it stays in trees. At the other end of the spectrum is very kind of chemical processes where you basically do what we do on submarines and, and space stations, where you scrub CO2 out of the air with a chemical reaction. And that can happen too. It's just, it takes a lot of energy to do that. And it, it's expensive to do that. The problem with the trees is they take a lot of land because you know it's more trees than we have today. So we'd have to devote land that don't have trees on them to, land, to have trees and that means then we're not doing agriculture or other things we might use with that land. So all of the solutions to actually be big enough to make an impact have trade-offs and adverse consequences of them. And so that's part of what my work is doing now is to clarify some of those trade-offs, talk about some of the impacts, but then also about, you know, going back to the solar case is how do we actually do this in a fast enough way to make a difference? And so if it's this idea of scrubbing the carbon out of the air with chemicals, could we do that? Um, in the same way that we've done with solar and batteries by, you know, kind of using this iteration, small scale, lots of improvement. And so that's, that's one area that I'm doing quite a bit of work on now. And I think we'll see more people working in that area too. Well, speaking of your various areas of work, another project that you're working on is the policy credibility for climate change. And here you argue that, and I'm just going to quote from it really quickly, quote, Climate policy necessarily involves long-term targets, which provide incentives for near-term investment in low-carbon technology. What if investors don't fully believe that those targets will be met? This project looks at how policy can be designed to enhance long-term credibility, end quote. So I think this is a really, really important question because I think the idea of time horizons and short and long-term impacts are kind of one of the essential questions uh, in dealing with issues of climate change. So, of course, we have to ask, how can these policies be designed to enhance long-term credibility in a way that creates investment incentives? Right, absolutely. So that, I'm glad you focused on that, those quotes there. That's exactly it. I mean, you can think about it with Paris. Like, if it's a two-degree target, do actually, are people actually investing that way today? It's, it's not totally clear. And actually, this whole issue came up to me when I was uh, working in Silicon Valley and in, in grad school and then interviewing people there who were venture capitalists and investors. And I kind of had this model where, well, these policies are not all certain about how much you get from them. And sometimes you get canceled. So I'm, I was interested in how they 
risk adjust if they're you know going to invest in a, like electric vehicle company and there's a tax credit do they kind of count part of it and say maybe we will get some maybe we won't and i had this kind of complicated system in my head that i tried to lay out to this venture capitalist he was he just kind of laughed at it and he's like it's way simpler than that we just ignore it he said if what the government giveth it can taketh away so we make our investments based on what will make money without policy. And if policy gives us some kind of extra incentive, that's great, we'll take it, but we would never risk our money based on policy. And so that that's kind of the issue, I think. And so one thing I've tried to do is work on, well, how do we get people like him less skeptical of the policy process? How do we get them to believe in targets so that they'll actually invest? And you know, this is these are not like the most conservative, safest people. These are people that are supposed to be investing in unicorns that mostly won't work, but once in a while they do, and then that pays off for all the bad bets. So they're supposed to be risky, uh, and yet they're not risky about policy. So one thing that comes up that I found is that we we'll call it like policy robustness. So if you have policies in multiple jurisdictions, so say multiple states have different policies about renewables or electric vehicles, then it's less an election or some kind of change in policy has less of an impact on whether your investments pay off or not. And that's really what the Chinese did with scaling up solar. So there was a big subsidy program in Germany, but eventually in 2005, there was an election, the conservative party took over and scaled back those subsidies dramatically. And the market got much smaller within a couple of years, but the Chinese were okay because they said, well, if the German market goes away, we've got Spain, which had its own subsidy program. And Italy had a subsidy program that came and went for a few years too. And then California started a big one. And then eventually when all of those got kind of wiped away with the financial crisis in 2009 and 10, China decided to start its own subsidy program and became the biggest market in the world for solar power. So um, I think that seems to be one of the ways you deal with this kind of policy volatility and, and the vulnerability of investments to things like elections is to have multiple jurisdictions that aren't that correlated, aren't that coordinated, so that when one goes away, you've still got the others. And eventually over time, uh, these markets kind of reinforce each other, the policies reinforce each other. And then if there's kind of a growing sentiment that this is an important issue that we're going to work on, regardless of whether policies or subsidies are there, that also helps. And so today, now, if we're talking about, you know, climate change in Wisconsin, and we've got this big, mostly empty industrial site in Mount Pleasant that was supposed to be making TVs by now, but is not, you know, there's potential that that could get used for making batteries for electric vehicles. And that's because the winds are kind of blowing in the same direction in terms of, okay, there's a market there, technology is getting better, there's likely to be some subsidies for it. We may sell them in Wisconsin, but we may sell them to other states or maybe even to other countries if, if the subsidies get strong in other places. And, and that's one way it can work pretty well. So I think if it all doesn't have to hang on one policy, but is kind of supported by multiple policies that don't connect all together, I think that's a way to create robustness in the incentives so that that venture capital guy that was so skeptical will be a loser because he missed the boat and people that were ready to, to make some bets on policy uh, are the ones potentially like Foxconn um, that could really um, see the growth happen. 
I have many endless things to say about Mount Pleasant and Foxconn, but that's for another day. <laughs> I want to make sure to ask this while we still have time relating to the pandemic and environment. You know, early on, there was a lot of talk and I'm just saying talk, you know, not a lot of research, a lot of talk about how limits and lockdowns might curb travel and how that might affect emissions in the atmosphere and possible long-term effects of that. Is there any, in your uh, in your experience, is there any truth to that or any kind of long-term implication we can glean environmentally from the pandemic? I mean, I think there's some things that we learned, but I don't think we know what's going to happen in terms of emissions. I mean, we were actually asked for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to, you know, make some claims about that. And I personally, I've really resisted doing that because I, I'm assume there'll be a, a large rebound in the next couple of years of travel and growth. But then after that, it's kind of an open question. So that's that's kind of where it matters. But just a few things we have learned, though, is that there actually is a fair amount of flexibility in how people live. And so that the idea that we might adapt to a different climate or adapt to a different policy regime where climate policy is a more important part of our lives, I, I think there actually is more flexibility than um, people would have thought beforehand. Like if you had been told that you're not going to have like freedom for at least freedom to travel for at least a year, that you'd be home for most of that time, that half a million Americans would die in that time. I mean, it, it, you would probably think things are a bit more dire than they are today. So that's maybe one thing that there is some flexibility, despite the horrible consequences of the pandemic. And two, you know, this idea of Operation Warp Speed and, and getting vaccines to happen on an unprecedented speed is almost miraculous, but you know, it had a lot of good ideas behind it. It worked well. Like the US government, for example, made many bets. So about seven different vaccine programs got funded. They didn't all have to work, but two or three of them worked really well. And so we're getting the benefits of that. There was commitments for research money that went out, but also commitments to demand that we would buy, you know, a hundred million doses at specified prices. And so if you could get a vaccine to pass through trials, you had a big payday waiting for you. And so, you know, that we could do something quite similar on some of these other technologies that we need. So there's a lot uh, to learn from that. And then the other thing that's dramatic to me is that if we look at 2020, which was almost like globally, you know, pandemic for almost that whole year, 90% of the new power plant construction in 2020 was wind and solar. And that's not just in the US, that's the whole world. So places like China and India and rapidly growing places like Indonesia and Vietnam, that's mostly what is getting built. And so it's not that the environment's a luxury good anymore, because it, it kind of used to be. When times got tough and there was a recession or unemployment got high, the environment as a prior, social priority like really dropped. It was something that we would want more of when times were good. Um, but here's a, a year when times are horrible and uh, renewables are kind of taking over. And so I think that's kind of showing a real changing of the guard in terms of uh, low carbon versus high carbon uh, energy supply. And then the last thing is it, it's kind of up to whether the recovery and the post-pandemic investments we do, how much greenness they have. Like there's a way that we could build back with infrastructure spending that has a lot of focus on setting things up for a transition to a low carbon future. And, you know, it's the US, but it's Europe, 
Korea, Japan, China, India, all these places, like they're all making investments in recovery and the extent to which they're green, I think will make a big difference in terms of setting us up for dealing with the climate issue. As we're starting to kind of wrap up today, the one question that we've been asking all of our guests at the end of the episodes is that it's been quite the year in politics and global events and everything is oftentimes pretty dark. So what we've been asking is what's one thing that you're hopeful about? And it could either be related to politics or your area of research or just anything in your life or just kind of in the world? What's one thing that you're hopeful about? So I like this question. And, you know, the classes that I teach on energy or environments often include a lot of um, doomy types of topics. And I, at some point I thought I was actually discouraging people too much with the reality of them. Um, so I started putting together a list of reasons to be optimistic at the end of the, my courses. And, you know, I have to say like over time, the lists have gotten longer. I'm have more and more kind of confidence in each of those items. And then I talk to other people that have different lists. And so I think there really are a bunch of things that are going in the right direction. One of them is clearly technology improving and, you know, You've seen it in vaccines, but we've seen it in solar, seeing it in electric vehicles. And then, you know, there's potential for a lot more than that uh, to improve. So that's something that, you know, I've focused on the book was really about. But the other part that I've had on my list for a while, but it was kind of more hopeful, was that at some point, young people who have the biggest stake in the outcomes of dealing with energy and climate issues are likely to play a bigger role or at least start, you know, calling out the older generations that were kind of not adequately addressing the problem that was, that is going to affect their lives in a big way. But to see how that has actually happened and not just saying something that could or should happen, uh, but actually has in the last couple of years, really from an international perspective, like the Fridays for the Future movement and the Sunrise movement in the US, it's a globally interconnected group of people that are savvy on media, savvy on organizing, have very quite direct messaging and has really uh, played a role and is getting harder to ignore. And I can only imagine will get more important as those people, you know, kind of move along from being youth to moving to the age at which they can run for office and, and actually be impactful on decisions. So I think that youth movement actually makes me quite optimistic about us dealing with energy and climate. Professor Nemeth, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. We really, really enjoyed talking to you. This has been wonderful. Yeah, I enjoyed speaking with you too and really enjoyed your questions. It was really uh, great to chat. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>